17. All steel train between Atlanta and Birmingham which, in point of equipment, may be compared with the best limited trains anywhere. The last car in this train, instead of being part sleeping car and part observation car, is a combination dining and observation car a very pleasant arrangement. For men are allowed to smoke in the observation and after dinner. The silent to my mind, an improvement over the practice of most railroads, which obliges men who wish to smoke to leave the ladies with whom they may be traveling. All seaboard dining cars offer, aside from regular a carte service, a 60-cent dinner known as the Blue Plate Special. This dinner has many advantages over the usual dining car repast. In the first place, though it does not comprise bread and butter, coffee or tea, or dessert, it provides an ample supply of meat and vegetables at a moderate price. In the second place, though served at a fixed price, it bears no resemblance to the old-style dining car tabled haute, but, upon the contrary, looks and tastes like food, the food, furthermore, instead of representing a great variety of viands served in microscopic helpings on innumerable platters and side dishes, comes on one great plate, with recesses for vegetables, the blue plate special, furnishes, in short, the chief items in a good home meal, this island perhaps, as convenient a place as any in which to speak of certain points concerning various railroads in the south. The Central of Georgia Railway, running between Atlanta and Savannah, instead of operating Pullmans, has its own sleeping cars. This is the only railroad I know of in the country on which the tenant of a lower berth, below an unoccupied upper, may have the upper closed without paying for it. One likes the Central of Georgia for this humane dispensation. The locomotives of the Western and Atlantic carry as a distinguishing mark a red band at the top of the smokestack. The Southern Railway assigns engineers to individual engines, instead of pooling power, as is the practice, I believe, on many railroads. Because of this, engineers on the Southern regard the locomotives to which they are regularly assigned, as their personal property, and exercise their individual taste in embellishing them. Brass bands, brass flagstaffs, brass eagles over the headlight, and similar adornments are therefore often seen on the engines of this road giving the most elaborate of them a carnival appearance, by contrast with the somber black to which most of us are accustomed, and hinting that not all the individuality has been unionized out of locomotive engineers an impression heightened by the Southern Railway's further pleasant custom of painting the names of its older and more expert engineers upon the cabs of their locomotives. Some cities are like lumbering old farm horses, plugging along a dusty country road, when another horse overtakes them, if they be not altogether wanting in spirit. They may be encouraged to jot a little faster for a moment, stimulated by example. If, besides being stupid, they are mean, then they want to kick or bite at the speedier animal going by. Some cities are like that, too. If an energetic city overtakes them, they are not spurred on to emulation, but lay back their ears, so to speak. Again, there are tough, sturdy little cities like buckskin ponies. There are skittish cities which seem to have been badly broken. There are old cities with a worn-out kind of elegance, like that of superannuated horses of good breed, hitched to an old-fashioned barouche. There are bad, bucking cities, like Butte, Montana, and here and there are cities, like Atlanta, reminding one of thoroughbred hunters. There is a brave, sporting something in the spirit of Atlanta which makes it rush courageously at big jumps, and clear them, and land clean on the other side, and be off again, like a thoroughbred. She loves the chase. She goes into a win. She doesn't stop to worry about whether she can win or not. She knows she will. 
and as the thoroughbred, loving large and astonishing achievement, lacks the humbler virtues of the reliable family carriage horse, that landed, it cannot be denied, has L's to thoughts to southeast squalites, for whereas, on the side of dashing performance, Atlanta held a stock fair which, in one year, surpassed any other held in the South, and secured the grand circuit of races, on the other side she is careless about hospitals and charities, and whereas, on the one side, she has raised millions for the building of two new universities which, by the way, would be much better as one great university, but cannot be, because of sectarian domination, on the other, she is deficient as to schools, and again, whereas she is the only secondary city to have an annual season of Metropolitan Grand Opera and to make it pay, she is behind many other cities, including her neighbors, New Orleans and Savannah, in caring for the public health. I am by no means sure that the regular spring visit of the Metropolitan Grand Opera Company may be taken as a sign that Atlanta is peculiarly a music-loving community. Indeed, I was told by one Atlanta lady, herself a musician, that the city did not contain more than a thousand persons of real musical appreciation, that a number of these could not afford to attend the operatic performances, and that Opera Week was, consequently, in reality more an occasion of great social festivity than of devout homage to art. Our Opera Week, she told me, bears the same relation to the life of Atlanta as Mardi Gras does to that of New Orleans. It is an advertisement for the city, and an excuse for everyone to have a good time. Every night after the performance there are suppers and dances, which the opera stars attend. They always seem to enjoy coming here. They act as though they were off on a picnic, skylarking about the hotel, snapshotting one another, and playing all manner of pranks. And, of course, while they are here they own the town. Crusoe draws his little caricatures for the Atlanta girls, and Atlanta men have been dazzled, in successive seasons, by such gorgeous beings as Geraldine Thurrer. Alma Gluck, and Mariah Barrientos not only across the footlights of the auditorium, mind you, but at close range, as, for instance, that dances at the driving club, with Chinese lanterns strung on the terrace, a full moon above, and one year with the whole Metropolitan Orchestra playing dance music all night long, another lady, endeavoring to picture to me the strain involved in the week's gaieties, informed me that when it was all over she went for a rest to New York where she attended a house party at the Waldorf. Of all Atlanta's undertakings, planned or accomplished, that which most interested my companion and me was the one for turning a mountain into a sculptured monument to the Confederacy. Sixteen miles to the east of the city the layer of granite which underlies the region stuck its back up, so to speak, forming a great smooth granite hump, known as Stone Mountain. This mountain is one of America's natural wonders, in form it may be compared with a round-backed fish such as a whale or porpoise, lying on its belly, partly embedded in a beach, and some conception of its dimensions may be gathered from the fact that from nose to tail it measures about two miles, while the center of its back is as high as the Woolworth building in New York. Moreover, there is not a fissure in it, monoliths a thousand feet long have been quarried from it, it is as solid as the solid south, the perpendicular streaks of light and dark gray and gray-green, made by the elements upon the face of the rock coupled with the waterfall-like curve of that face, make one think of a sort of sublimated petrified Niagara fancy enhanced, on windy days, by the roar of the gale-lashed forest at the mountain's foot. The idea of turning the mountain into a Confederate memorial originated with Mr. William H. Carroll of Atlanta. It was taken up with inspired energy by Mrs. C. Helen Plain, 
an Atlanta lady, now 87 years of age, who was honorary president of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and president of the Stone Mountain Memorial Association. Mrs. Plain presented the memorial plan to Mr. Samuel H. Venable of Venable Brothers, owners of the mountain, and Mr. Venable promptly turned over the whole face of the mountain to the Memorial Association. The exact form the memorial was to take had not at that time been developed. Gutson Borglum was, however, called in and worked out a stupendous idea, which he has since been commissioned to execute, on the side of the mountain, about 400 feet above the ground, a roadway is to be gouged out of the granite, on this roadway will be carved, in gigantic outlines, a Confederate army, headed by Leon Jackson on horseback, other generals will follow, and will, in turn, be followed by infantry, cavalry and artillery. The leading groups will be in full relief and the equestrian figures will be 50 or more feet tall. This means that the faces of the chief figures will measure almost the height of a man. The figures to the rear of the long column will, according to present plans, be in B.A.'s relief, and the whole procession will cover a strip perhaps a mile long, all of it carved out of the solid mountainside. A considerable tract of forest land at the foot of the Great Rock has already been dedicated as a park. Here concealed by the trees, at a point below the main group of figures, a temple, with thirteen columns representing the thirteen confederate states, is to be hewn out of the mountain, to be used as a place for the safekeeping of confederate relics and archives, two million dollars is the sum spoken of to cover the total cost, and one of the finest things about the plans for raising this money is that contributions from the entire country are being accepted, so that not only the south, but the whole nation, may have a share in the creation of a memorial to that dead government which the South so poetically adores, yet which it would not willingly resurrect, and in the realization of a work resembling nothing so much as Kipling's conception of the artist in heaven, who paints on a ten-league canvas, with brushes of comet's hair, until the Stone Mountain Memorial is completed, Atlanta's most celebrated monument will continue to be that of Jack Smith. The Jack Smith Monument stands in Oakland Cemetery, not over the grave of Jack Smith but over the grave that local character intends someday to occupy. Mr. Smith is reputed to be rich. He built the downtown office building known as the house that Jack built, as befits the owner of an office building. He wears a silk hat, but a certain democratic simplicity may be observed in the rest of his attire, especially about the region of the neck. For though he apparently believes in the convention concerning the wearing of collars, he has a prejudice against the concealing of a portion of the collar by that useless and snobbish adornment, the necktie. Each spring, I am informed, it is his custom to visit his cemetery lot and inspect the statue of himself which a commendable foresight has caused him to erect over his proposed final resting place. It is said that upon the occasion of last season's vernal visit he was annoyed at finding his effigy cravat by a vine which had grown up and encircled the neck. This he caused to be removed, and it is to be hoped that when at last, his monument achieves its ultimate purpose. Those who care for the cemetery will see to it that leafy tendrils be not permitted to mount to the marble collar of the figure, to form a necktie, or to obscure the knobbly sculptured collar button. Chapter XXXIV Georgia Journalism in Journalism Atlanta is far in advance of many cities of her size, north or south. The Atlanta Constitution, founded nearly half a century ago, is one of the country's most distinguished newspapers. The Constitution came into its greatest fame in the early 80s, when Captain Evan P. Howell the same Captain Howell who commanded a battery at the Battle of Peachtree Creek, in the defense of Atlanta, and who later called, with his son, 
on General Sherman, as already recorded became its editor, and Henry W. Grady its managing editor, like William Allen White and Walt Mason of the Emporia, Kansas, Gazette, who work side by side, admire each other, but disagree on every subject save that of the infallibility of the groundhog as a weather prophet. Howell and Grady worked side by side and were devoted friends, while disagreeing personally, and in print, on Prohibition and many other subjects. Grady would speak at Prohibition rallies and, sometimes on the same night, Howell would speak at anti-Prohibition rallies. In their speeches they would attack each other. The accounts of these speeches, as well as conflicting articles written by the two, would always appear in the Constitution of the pair of public monuments to individuals which I remember having seen in Atlanta. One was the pleasing memorial, in Piedmont Park, to Sidney Lanier who was peculiarly a Georgia poet, having been born in Macon, in that state, and having written some of his most beautiful lines under the spell of Georgia scenes, and the other the statue of Henry W. Grady, which stands downtown in Marietta Street. The Grady Monument one regrets to say it is less fortunate as a work of art than as a deserved symbol of remembrance. Grady not only ought to have a monument, but as one whose writings prove him to have been a man of taste, he ought to have a better one than this poor mid-Victorian thing, placed in the middle of a wide, dizzy street, with Fords parked all day long about its base, says the inscription, he never sought a public office, when he died he was literally loving a nation into peace, on another side of the base is chiseled a characteristic extract from one of Grady's speeches, the speech was made in 1899 in Boston, and one hopes that it may have been heard by the late Charles Francis Adams, who labored in Massachusetts for the cause of intersectional harmony, just as Grady worked for it in Georgia. This hour said Grady little needs the loyalty that is loyal to a one section and yet holds the other in enduring suspicion and estrangement. Give us the broad and perfect loyalty that loves and trusts Georgia like with Massachusetts that knows no South, no North, no East, no West but endears with equal and patriotic love every foot of our soil, every state in our union. Grady could not only write and say stirring things, he could be witty. He once spoke at a dinner of the New England Society, in New York, at which General Sherman was also present. Down in Georgia, he said, We think of General Sherman as a great general, but it seems to us he was a little careless with fire. Nor was Grady less brilliant as managing editor than upon the platform. He had the kind of enterprise which made James Gordon Bennett such a dashing figure in newspaper life, and the New York Herald such a complete newspaper the kind of enterprise that charters special trains, and at all hazards gets the story it is after. Back in the early 80s Grady was running the Atlanta Constitution in just that way. If a big story broke in any of the territory around Atlanta, Grady would not wait upon train schedules, but would hire an engine and send his men to the scene. Once. Following a sensational murder, he learned that the Birmingham H. Herald had a big story dealing with developments in the case. He wired the H. Herald, offering a large price for the story. When his offer was refused Grady knew that if he could not devise a way to get the story, Atlanta would be flooded next day with H. Herald's containing the beat on the Constitution. He at once chartered a locomotive and rushed to reporters and four telegraph operators down the line toward Birmingham, at Anniston, Alabama. The locomotive met the train which was bringing H. Heralds to Atlanta. A copy of the paper was secured. The Constitution men then broke into a telegraph office and wired the whole story into their paper, with the result that the Constitution was out with it before the Birmingham papers reached Atlanta. 
Atlanta was at that time a town of only about 40.000 inhabitants, but the Constitution, in the days of Howell and Grady, had a circulation four times greater than the total population of the city a situation almost unheard of in journalism. Something of the breadth of its influence may be gathered from the fact that in several counties in Texas, where the law provided that whatever newspaper had the largest circulation in the county should be the county organ. The county organ was the Atlanta Constitution, an Atlanta lady tells of having called upon Grady to complain about an article which she did not think the Constitution should have printed. Why did you put that objectionable article in your paper? She asked him. Did you read it? He inquired. Yes, I did. Then, said Grady, that's why I put it there. Grady and Howell always ran a lively sporting department. Away back in the days of bare knuckle prize fights such as those between Sullivan and Ryan, and Sullivan and Kilrain a Constitution reporter was always at the ringside, no matter where the fight might take place. For a newspaper in a town of 40 or 50,000 inhabitants, a large percentage of them colored illiterates, this was real enterprise. A favorite claim of Grady's was that his reporters were the greatest leg artists in the world. He used to organize walking matches for reporters, offering large prizes and charging admission. This developed, in the mid-80s, a general craze for such matches, and resulted in the holding of many inter-city contests, in which teams, for men to aside, took part. One of the Constitution's champion leg artists was Sam W. Small, now an evangelist and member of the Flying Squadron of the Anti-Saloon League of America. The most widely celebrated individual ever connected with the Constitution was Joel Chandler Harris, many of whose Uncle Remus stories those Negro folk tales still supreme in their field appeared originally in that paper. In view of Mr. Harris's achievement it is pleasant to recall that there was paid to him during his life one of the finest tributes that an author can receive, as with Mr. Dooley of our day. He came, himself, to be affectionately referred to by the name of the chief character in his works. Uncle Remus, he was, and Uncle Remus, he will always be, Mr. Harris's eldest son, Julian, widely known as a journalist, is said to have been the little boy to whom Uncle Remus told his tales. Though their island as yet, no public monument in Atlanta to Joel Chandler Harris, the Wren's Nest, his former home, at 214 Gordon Street, is fittingly preserved as a memorial. Visitors may see the old letter box fastened to a tree by the gate that box in which a wren built her nest, giving the house its name. It is a simple old house with the air of a home about it, and the intimate possessions of the author lie about as he left them. His bed is made up. His umbrella hangs upon the mantel shelf. His old felt hat rests upon the rack. The photograph of his friend James Whitcomb Riley looks down from the bedroom wall, and on the table, by the window, stands his typewriter the confidant first to know his new productions. The presence of these personal belongings keeps alive the illusion that Uncle Remus has nearly stepped out for a little while as hiding in the garden, waiting for us to go away. It would be like him, for he was among the most modest and retiring of men as there are many amusing anecdotes to indicate. Once when someone had persuaded him to attend a large dinner in New York, they say, he got as far as New York, but as the dinner hour approached could not bear to face the adulation awaiting him, and incontinently fled back to Atlanta. Frank L. Stanton, poet laureate of Georgia, and of the Constitution, joined the Constitution staff through the efforts of Mr. Harris, one of whose closest intimates he was. Speaking of Mr. Harris's gift for Negro dialect, 
Mr. Stanton told me that there was one Negro exclamation which Uncle Remus always wished to reproduce, but which he never quite felt could be expressed. In writing, to those unfamiliar with the Negro at first hand, that is the exclamation of amazement, which has the sound, M-M-M-M-H, the first syllable being long and the last sharp and exclamatory. Mr. Stanton has for years conducted a column of verse and humorous paragraphic comment, under the heading, Just from Georgia, on the editorial page of the Constitution. Some idea of the high estimation in which he is held in his state is to be gathered from the fact that Frank L. Stanton Day is annually celebrated in the Georgia schools. Mr. Stanton began his newspaper career as a country editor in the town of Smithville, Georgia. Mr. Harris, then a member of the Constitution's editorial staff, began reprinting in that journal verses and paragraphs written by Stanton, with the result that the Smithville paper became known all over the country. Later Stanton moved to her own, Georgia, becoming an editorial writer on a paper there the Tribune, edited at that time by John Temple Graves, if I am not mistaken. Still later he removed to Atlanta, joined the staff of the Constitution, and started the department which has now continued for more than 25 years. Joel Chandler Harris used to tell a story about Stanton's first days in the Constitution office. According to this story, the paper on which Stanton had worked in Rome had not been prosperous, and salaries were uncertain. When the business manager went out to try to raise money in the town, he never returned without first reading the signals placed by his assistant in the office window. If a red flag was shown, it signified that a collector was waiting in the office. In that event the business manager would not come in but would circle about until the collector became tired of waiting and departed a circumstance indicated by the withdrawal of the red flag and the substitution of a white one. According to the story, as it was told to me, reporters on the paper were seldom paid, if one of them made bold to ask for his salary, he was likely to be discharged. It was from this uncertain existence that Stanton was lured to the Constitution by an offer of 22.50 per week. When he had been on the Constitution for three weeks Mr. Harris discovered that he had drawn no salary. This surprised him as indeed it would any man who had had newspaper experience. Stanton, he said, you are the only newspaper man I have ever seen who is so rich he doesn't need to draw his pay. But, as it turned out, Stanton was not so prosperous as Harris perhaps supposed. He was down to his last dime, and had been wondering how he could manage to get along for his training on the own paper had taught him never to ask for money lest he lose his job. Well, he said to Harris, I could use some of my salary if you're sure it won't be any inconvenience. Those familiar with the works of Mr. Stanton, Mr. Harris, and James Whitcomb Riley, Indiana's great poet, will perceive that certain similar tastes and feelings inform their writings, and will not be surprised to learn, if not already aware of it, that the three were friends. Mr. Stanton's only absence from Atlanta since he joined the Constitution, was on the occasion of a visit he paid Mr. Riley at the latter's home in Indianapolis. The best of Stanton's work must have appealed to Riley, for it contains not a little of the kindly, homely, humorous truthfulness, and warmth of sentiment, of which Riley was himself such a master. Among the most widely familiar verses of the Georgia poet are those of his Mighty Like a Rose, set to music by Ethelbert Nevin and, just a wearying for you, with music by Carrie Jacobs Bond, money, is a verse in hilarious key, which many will remember for the comical vigor of the last three lines in its first stanza, when a fellow has spent his last red cent the world looks blue, you bet, but give him a dollar and you'll hear him holler, 
there's life in the old land yet, richly humorous though Stanton Island he can also reach the heart, the former governor of a western state picked up Stanton's book, Songs of the Soil, and after reading, Hanging Bill Jones, and, A Tragedy, therein, commuted the sentence of a man who was to have been executed next day, one hopes the man deserved to escape, in another case an individual who was about to commit suicide chanced to see in an old newspaper Stanton's encouraging verses called, Keep It Going, and was stimulated by them to have a fresh try at life on earth instead of elsewhere. Joel Chandler Harris wrote the introduction to, Songs of the Soil. Other collections of Stanton's works are, Songs of Dixieland, and, Comes One with a Song. The danger in starting to quote from these books which, by the way, are chiefly made up of measures that appeared originally in the Constitution, is that one does not like to stop. I have, however, limited myself to but one more theft, and instead of making my own choice, have left the selection to a friend of Mr. Stanton's, who has suggested the lines entitled, A Poor Unfortunate, His Hoss Went Dead, and His Mule Went Lame. He lost six cows in a poker game, a hurricane come on a summer's day and carried the house where he lived away. Then an earthquake come when that was gone and swallowed the land that the house stood on, and the tax collector, he come ruin and charged him up for the hole in the ground, and the city marshal he come in view and said he wanted his street tax. Two, did he moan and sigh? Did he set and cry and cuss the hurricanes weakened by? Did he grieve that his old friends failed to call when the earthquake come and swallowed all? Never a word o' blame he said, with all them troubles on top his head, not him. He climbed on top of the hill worst and in room was left him still, and, now in his head, here's what he said, I reckon it's time to get up and get, but, Lord, I ain't had the measles yet, among those who have been on the staff of the Constitution and have become widely known, may be mentioned the gifted Cora Harris, many of whose stories have Georgia backgrounds, and who still keeps as a country home in the state where she was born, a log cabin, known as, in the valley, that pine log. Georgia, also the perhaps equally though differently talent Robert Adamson, whose administration as fire commissioner of the city of New York was so able as to result in a reduction of insurance rates, that Atlanta reporters, it would seem, run to the New York Fire Department, for Joseph Johnson, who preceded Mr. Adamson as commissioner, was once a reporter on the Atlanta Journal, the latter paper used to belong to Hoaksmith, it was at one time edited by John Temple Graves who later edited the Atlanta Georgian, and is now a member of the forces of William Randolph Hearst, in New York, the late shot Futrell, the author, who went down with the Titanic, was a Georgian, and worked for years on the journal, Don Marquis, one of the most brilliant American newspaper columnists, now in charge of the department known as the Sundial, on the New York Evening Sunday, was also at one time on the journal, as was likewise Grandland Rice. America's most widely read sporting writer, Lolly Bell whose poetry has a distinct southern quality, is, I believe, a member of the journal's staff. As the eminent T. Cobb once wrote a book, it seems fair to mention him also among Georgian authors, though so far as I know he never worked on an Atlanta paper, and if Atlanta's three celebrated golfers have not written for the papers, they have at least supplied the sporting page with much material. Miss Alexis Sterling of Atlanta the young lady under 20, is one of the best women golfers in the United States, Harry Adair also figures in national golf, and Robert T. Bobby Jones, Jr. who was Southern champion at the age of 14, Island perhaps, 
an unprecedented marvel at the game so at least my golfing friends inform me. The continued militancy of the Constitution, under the editorship of Clark Howell, who sits in his father's old chair, with a bust of Grady at his elbow, is evidenced not only by its frequent editorials against lynching, but by its fearless campaign against another Georgia specialty the paper colonel. The ranks of the paper colonels in the South are chiefly made up of lawyers who have been colonelized by custom for no other reason than that they have led their clients to victory in legal battles. Some of the real colonels have been objecting to the paper kind, and the Constitution has bravely backed up the objection. The liveliness of journalism in Georgia does not begin and end in Atlanta. The Savannah Morning News has an able editorial page, and there are many others in the state. Some of the small town papers are, moreover, well worth reading for that kind of breeziness which we usually associate with the West rather than the South. Consider, for example, the following, in which the Dalomega Georgia Nugget, published up in the mountains, in the section where gold is mined, discusses the failings of one Billy Adams, the editor's own son-in-law, on Saturday last. Billy Adams and his wife waylaid the public road over on Crown Mountain, where the sorry piece of humanity stood and cursed while his wife knocked down and beat her sister, Emma. He is a son-in-law of ours, but if the Lord had anything to do with him, he must have made a mistake and thought he was breathing the breath of life into a dog. He is too lazy to work and lays around and waits for his wife to get what she can procure on credit, until she can get nothing more for him and the children to eat. Recently he claimed to be gone to Tennessee in search of work. Upon hearing that his family had nothing to eat, we had Carl Brookshire send over nearly four dollars worth of provisions, and he came and sat there and feasted until every bite was gone, but the sends it with us. There are a lot of people who have sorry kinfolks, but in this instance if there were prizes offered, we would certainly win the first. Last year, thinking he would scare his mother-in-law and sister-in-law off from where they live, so he could get the place, he shot two holes through their window turned their mule out of the stable, and tried to run it into the bean patch, besides hanging up a bunch of switches at the drawbars, then their fence was set afire twice, this is said to be the work of his wife, then, after carrying home meat, flour, lard, and vegetables, 